0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Moment that you would use me in this moment, that your word would be honored and rightly taught, and that the eyes of every one of us would be open, that the ears of every one of us would be open, that our hearts would be soft to receive your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are in Mark chapter 12. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can find Mark chapter 12 on page 848. Uh, For those of you who may not know who I am, my name is Jeremy Phillips. I'm pastor for adult ministries here at Rosemont. Uh, Usually on Sunday mornings, Adam Camp preaches uh, to us. He's our senior pastor, but he just got back with a team from India, so he asked me if I would uh, preach this week, and, I, and I, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um, we've been studying through the book of, of Mark for, for several months now, and, and Mark is, is classified as a gospel, and that word just means good news. And for us, it's good news because it tells us about the life of Jesus, it tells us how he's the promised Messiah who came and gave his life on a cross to pay the price for our sin and rose victoriously, defeating sin and death, that we might have eternal life through faith in him. So for us, it is great news. And so we've been celebrating this good news and studying through the book of Mark. And if you look at Mark, uh, the first uh, 10 chapters, chapters 1 through 10, uh, give us this this period of time of Jesus' ministry, it's about three years. And then when we come from, to chapter 11 through 16, the rest of the book slows down and focuses in on this journey he takes to the cross to give his life and tells us about how he rose from the dead. So Mark is focusing our attention on this special moment. And so we come to chapter 11 and Jesus is ushered in triumphantly as the long-awaited Messiah. See, the, he's on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And tens of thousands, if not millions of Jews made this journey. And they've heard about this Jesus, this one who calms the seas, who, who uh, heals the sick, who has power, who's raised someone from the dead. And so they think, well, this surely this is our long-awaited Messiah, and so they want to go see him as he's on his way to Jerusalem. They want to see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead 4 days in the grave called forth and rose. And they see Lazarus and they hear the stories and and to them this moment is confirmation that this has to be our Messiah. So they As he's making his journey into Jerusalem, they begin to throw their coats on the ground in celebration and submission to him. And they wave palm branches in the air as a sign of their joy that he's bringing peace. And they're singing and they're shouting and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, this is our king. He has come to make everything right. He has come to establish our kingdom." But they thought that that kingdom was going to be established by overthrowing the Roman occupation, the oppressors in their land, that they would be restored as a sovereign nation, as God's people under his rule. But that is not what he came to do. He came to defeat sin and death. And to establish a new kingdom. And so he goes directly into the city and not confronting the, the uh, Roman leaders, he confronts the religious leaders in the temple because he sees that this, this place God has given them to worship him rightly, to offer sacrifice to him has been turned in to this moment for them to fill their pockets, for them to gain their power. And Jesus begins to overthrow tables and chase the moneylenders who are charging people exorbitant rates for them to get enough money to buy sacrifices at the temple. And and Jesus cleanses this temple, temple. And the chief priests and the rulers are angry because this threatens their power. This threatens their money. This threatens their reputation. And so we see in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. And so then there's these four accounts where they approach Jesus and they ask him this questions, hoping to stump him, hoping to entrap him, that they have a reason to have him executed by the Romans. And so they have this question to him about his authority and his answer silences them. They ask him about his politics and and paying tribute to uh, Caesar to pay taxes and his answer marvels them. They question him about the resurrection, the, the religious leaders who are supposed to teach the word and he shows that they don't even have a basic understanding of scripture themselves and they're embarrassed. And then they ask him about the law. Surely he will defame the law. And through their his answer to them it says and after that no one dared ask him any more questions so let's look at their final question and the answer that silenced them Mark chapter 12 verse 28 through 31 and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well asked them, him which commandment is the most important of all Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is the word of the Lord. If I were to ask you what is the most important thing in your life, what would you say this morning? Would it be money? Would it be health, education, family, comfort, the pursuit of pleasure, relationships, a hobby, work? In fact, on, on, on this Father's Day, dads, what would your family say about you if you asked them, what does dad value the most? They see you on a, a daily basis. They see your life. They assess your life. If they were to do so at that moment, what would they say you value the most? And when I was first preparing, I thought, I I don't want to ask this question to my family. Fear of the answer. But my wife, much braver than I, yesterday decided she would just throw it out there. And she said, what does daddy value the most? And my daughter said, work. And then she said, what does mommy value the worst? And she said, coffee. (laughs) (laughs) So being the good... maneuvers of scripture that we are, I thought, well, daddy goes to work to serve the Lord. So that's, you know, honoring the Lord. And mommy re- uh, drinks coffee as she studies her Bible. So she's basically seeing that we value God the most in our life. She just hasn't been able to put that into words. But if someone were to ask you, what is the most important thing in your life? What would you say? If they were observing your life, what would they say? I was listening to a talk earlier this week. And so I was listening to the talk and kind of thinking through this sermon I was just kind of convicted that I think the thing we value most in our life is time. Here's what I mean. We live in a frantic, overscheduled moment in history where time seems to be our greatest commodity. We're always in a hurry, moving from one thing to the next, saying yes to one activity after another, and filling our schedules moment by moment with noise. Even if we don't have something to do, we fill that time with something, movies, TV, hobbies, books. And it seems like every one of us is just longing for a little peace and quiet, but when we get a little peace and quiet, we feel the pressure to do, 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 and to fill those slots. And I was reminded of this documentary I watched, uh, I think, last year, and it was about the quietest place on earth, which is an anechoic chamber at Lower Orfield Laboratories in Minnesota. It's the quietest place on earth. It's this room specially designed to absorb sound. In fact, here's what it says about this room. Inside the room, it's silent. So silent that the background noise measured is actually negative decibels. Stephen Orfield, the lab's founder, said, We challenge people to sit in the chamber in the dark. Most can't stay very long. When it's quiet, ears will adapt. The quieter the room, the more things you hear. You'll hear your heart beating. Sometimes you'll hear your lungs, your stomach gurgling loudly. In the anechoic chamber, you become the sound. And people enter this this chamber, and they, they start to feel dizzy, get disoriented. Some hallucinate. And get sick, and they just want to be out. And I wonder if part of that has to do with our obsession to fill every moment. We feel like we've lost part of our identity if, if something's not going on, if we're not doing something. In fact, let's, let's test the theory this morning. How much do we feel awkward in silence? Are you ready? hard. You want to fill it with something, don't you? You think something needs to be said, or or let me ask it this way. If someone were to come up to you and say, you don't look too busy, can you? Would you take that offensively? Well, I'm busy. I've got plenty to do. What do you got to do? When maybe all they mean by that is, hey, you look at peace. You look like you've got it all together. I need help when I hear that, you're not, you're not busy, I think. It means I'm, I'm not being me. It, it's, it's a loss of identity. Well, in fact, right now, we're so addic- we're so consumed and busy that it's driving us crazy. In the talk that I mentioned earlier, he, the, the guy who's speaking, who's releasing a book in the fall, quotes this story. In, in this article, in Psychology Today, listen to what it says about how our obsession with busyness is making us sick. The article is called Hurry Sickness. It's our quest to do all and be all, costing us our health. Here's what the authors write. At one time or another, many of us have experienced what is called hurry sickness. By definition, hurry sickness is a behavior pattern characterized by continually, continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency. A person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster, to get flustered when encountering any type of delay. Does it sound familiar? To add to the conundrum, our rapidly expanding technology, which expen- is exponentially increasing, is supposed to improve our lives by making things easier and providing us much-needed time to relax. Smartphones have blessed us with effortless ways to communicate instantly. Computers answer our questions in the split second and help us keep up with growing demands. But technology becomes part of the new problem we are feeling, not the solution and the upshot is that in our uber-fast, uber-techno world, we are experiencing an epidemic of hurry sickness. Does that feel familiar? The authors go on to show that uh, we've been thought when we would get these technologies that, that life would, would become less consumed. We, we have microwaves, and washing machines, and dryers, and vacuums, and running water. In fact, there's uh, this case where um, they studied, and the fear of people th- in the past, of people thinking towards the future, is that we would be bored. We wouldn't have anything to do because everything would be taken care of. But that, that's not the reality We're not bored, we're we're consumed, and we're more and more busy. Here's some tests to see if you maybe suffer from this, this disease known as hurry sickness. Ask yourself if this is you. When you're at the store, do you move from one checkout line to another because it looks shorter or faster? When you're driving in your car, do you start to count the cars in front of you and get in the lane that has the least cars or is going the fastest? You multitask to the point of forgetting one of the tasks. You accidentally put your clothes on inside out and backwards. I was talking to Adam earlier this week. He had just gotten back. He was in my office. And then we're discussing something. And and I had this long uh, sleeve shirt on over my short sleeve shirt. And I start taking it off. And Adam's like looking at me. What did you do with it? I put it on backwards. i had been such a rush. Here's what an article in Fortune Magazine. Here's some more questions. Do you eat your lunch at your desk? while also checking emails and talking on the phone do you do something else while on a conference call or even while brushing your teeth while microwaving something for 30 seconds do you feel the urge to find something else to do while you wait do you repeatedly push the door close button on the elevator i love the quote in fortune magazine because it reveals what the issue is these are Secular business analysts, technology often gets the blame, but technology isn't the culprit. It's just that being connected every minute of the night and day means people are easily distracted by minutiae instead of taking time to slow down a bit and ask the big, important questions. We face A big, important question in this text, and I believe what Jesus says is imperative for us as his followers this morning. So, I want to ask two questions of you as we talk through these. Question number one. Do you love God with everything? Mark 12 And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Do you love God with everything? We have this religious expert, a re- expert in the, in the law, coming to Jesus and saying, what is the most important commandment in Scripture? The expert, the professor of theology. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context to what is going on in their minds at this time. Let's talk about the law and how many there are. The Jews had come to identify 613 commands in the Torah. That's the law, the first five books of the Bible. 248 of those commands were considered positive commands. Do this, do that, do this, do that. 365 of those were negative commands. Don't do this, don't do that. Don't do this, don't do that. 613 commands, 248, 365. Now these had significance in their mind. Because in the Ten Commandments that God revealed to Moses, there are 613 letters in the Ten Commandments. And the Jews believed that there are 248 parts of the body. There's something for you to do for every part of the body. And there's 365 days in a year. So there's something for you to avoid every day of your life. Now on top of that, they also had about 1,500 explanations or clarifications or more rules in their writings alone. So 2,000 rules and regulations are on their mind that they feel like they need to be obedient to each and every day. And they had this way of kind of maneuvering. There's no way you can obey that many laws. So how do we get by this? And they had these debates about um, light laws versus heavy laws. Which ones are, are somewhat optional and which ones are binding and necessary? Now, I kind of learned a, a lesson about this light and heavy laws when I first got married. Just after we had gotten married, we were celebrating. Uh, we were about to celebrate our first Valentine's Day together. And uh, I was in, we were in ministry together, so we were busy. We were flat broke, um, so we didn't have enough money to t- go out and do something. So we had this conversation, Jamie and I, and um, we said, Well, we don't need to do anything for Valentine's Day, okay? In my head, light law, right? Not that essential, not important. We don't need to do anything. Well, I come home on Valentine's Day after being at work, and I look at my beautiful bride, and I say, Happy Valentine's Day. I love you. And she says, I love you, too, and pulls out my favorite candy. And I panicked and said, I thought we said we weren't going to do anything. And I learned really quickly that doing something was more on the light side of the law, and actually uh, was not on the light side of the law, but kind of trended towards the heavy part. And that didn't mean that I didn't need to get her something. It was an easy lesson for me to learn in that moment. And so the, these Jewish uh, 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 teachers and leaders would debate which are the light and which are the heavy. MacArthur says this about them. They began to take a kind of reductionist view of their religion. If, if we could just find a few key laws and keep them we'll be okay, which is always the problem legalists have, right? If you're going to work your way in, you know you can't be perfect. You know you're a sinner. Your heart knows it. Your conscience knows it. Your mind knows it. Your wife knows it. Your kids know it. Your friends know it. The whole world knows it. So who are you fooling? So you've got to find maybe a few that you can keep, and that's going to be enough to satisfy God. And so if they were going to receive eternal life, They needed to know which laws were most important. And so the scribe asked Jesus, what is the most important uh, command? And Jesus says, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Here, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you would, please turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 151. And so Jesus quotes this this scripture which was that they were all well aware of, that the Jews were familiar with. In fact, they prayed it twice a day every day, and it was called the Shema, which means to listen. And and it didn't just mean listen in the sense of like let the, the words go in your ears, but it was like to listen and obey. To, to listen and respond. We all know that as parents, that sometimes we grab our kids and we say, listen. And I don't just mean hear what I'm saying. It means hear and obey what I'm about to tell you. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 8. Here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Now, I wish that we could take time and and, and work through the the various parts of this passage in the depth that we can't, but I want to point you to a resource that, that I really enjoy using in my own study. There's this organization called The Bible Project. I don't know if you've seen it. They have a YouTube channel, and they do these great teachings, summaries of entire books of the Bible, themes, and they have this series on the Shema. And it talks about key words in the shaman. so it's just something that you can look up. It's a www.thebibleproject.com or you can search that on YouTube and see their videos. But back to this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Here Moses is reminding the people of Israel he calls them by name. Listen, O Israel. Hear this: the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it wasn't just this um, simple use of the name God. It wasn't just this opal rim free postmodern view of a God who is not really connected to us. But it was to speak of an entire history, an entire character of who God is. It was to remind them of their own identity to remember as he received in Exodus 3, 5, when, when he calls Moses to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt or that he's going to deliver them. And Moses says, well, who am I supposed to say has sent me? Here's what God says. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That capital L O R D is to inform us that it's the use of the term Yahweh. And it's the same. Phrase that's the same word used in Deuteronomy where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the the covenant name of God, the creator of heaven and earth, who had promised to send a redeemer to crush the head of Satan, who had promised to bless all the nations of the earth through the seed of Abraham, who had delivered them from captivity. And so let's remind ourselves this morning that we're not just called to worship this impersonal God, but we who have been redeemed, set free, who were exiled to sin and death, have been led by Christ into the promise of eternal life with him. We who in 1 Peter 2.9 says, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessing possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We're a people. Think about what we saw in our announcements. We are no longer orphans. That picture of John and Kristen holding that baby, Hazel, is a picture of our adoption by Christ. We have been scooped up. And this name that we've been given, this identity we've been given, the name that that child would have is not just a name. It is an entire history of God's goodness and provision and people who loved. And our name is that Christ has loved us and redeemed us and we have been adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters, heirs. So they are not... Just called, hear, O Israel, Here, O Rosemont, hear, church, Here, you follower of Christ, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we are to love this God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might. We are to love him heart, soul, and might with everything that we have. With our thoughts, with our words, with our actions, with our feelings, with our thinking, with our emotions. From the very depths of our being, it is to spring forth and propel us forward to Him with all the strength in our bodies and neurons in our brain with a purpose to fix our affections on the covenant-keeping God who has redeemed us from the slavery of sin and death and made us alive to Christ. We are to love Him with everything that we have. But we are so fickle with the term love. We say, I love God. Earlier this week, I said to my wife on our ninth anniversary, I love you, honey. A couple of weeks ago, we were watching Survivor, something that we have kind of started to do, watching episodes here and now as a family. And I get wrapped up in the story, and like somebody made this play, this move, and somebody got voted out. And I jump to my feet, and I start to wave my hands at the TV, and I say, I love this television show. I love it. We use that word so lightly sometimes. I love what Matt Chandler says. We have to define what love is. Love in our culture is a junk drawer word because this week you said that you love your spouse, you love a good friend, and you love tacos. We don't have to know, we don't know any other way to communicate the emotion of, I really, really, really like this. So it's, man, I love football, man, I love my kids. So we need to define the term, and he goes on to say, love for, God is delight, uh, love for God is delighting in him and desiring to know and be with him. It is turning towards him. Are you turning towards him? Are we turning towards him? Are we delighting in him? Are we seeking to know him better? Because what we turn to in our lives shows what we value most. And so this loving of God is not squeezing him into the cracks of our lives or the empty spots in our calendar. It is a consuming passion of our heart to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. It is turning ourselves towards him. And the issue is not time and hurry. John Mark Cromer says this, we think the problem is time, but let me tell you, The solution is not more time. If the universe were reshaped and all of a sudden there were 10 more hours in a day or three more days in a week, what would you do? If you're anything like me, you would just fill up those hours with the exact same stuff that you're doing now, but more of it. And at the end of the day or at the end of the week, you'd be even more exhausted than you are now. It's God's mercy that he's put limits on the number of hours in a day and the days in a week. So the solution is not more time, it's slowing down to simplify our lives around what really matters, not to add, but to subtract. I'm not calling you to add, I'm calling you to subtract so that you can focus. And just as a side note to to fathers, when we look in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we shall love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and with All your might. And then it says, These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Men, if if dads, if, if our kids were asked next year what we value most, wouldn't it be amazing if they responded, You just love the Lord, Dad, and you invest that in me? May that be our goal. So question number one is, do you love God with everything? Question number two is, do you love your neighbor rightly? Jesus answered, the most important is, here. oh, we're back in Mark 12. Hear, oh, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And he goes on to quote from Leviticus where we're called to love our neighbor. And in the context, it's, it's loving the poor, the foreigner, the, our neighbor, our workers, our brother, the deaf, the blind. It is the practical outworking of our love for God. Where we love everyone regardless of who they are in our eyes. Because we're overflowing with this love for God. These people who have been created in God's image. And first, John, we get a little, more, a, a little more of a challenging statement of this. Listen to what John writes. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For if he does not love his brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We as the people who have received grace and mercy, who have received the love of God, who know the love of God should understand this. That to love God means to love brother because we know that God loved, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know love because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We know that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We understand that Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That there's nothing in all of creation. And then he goes to say, I'm broken. I would be separated for the sake of my brothers if I could. Because he loved God and he loved his neighbor. Mark Dever says that this is a warning against any privatized version of Christianity that you made up in your mind. Love for God necessarily involves love for others and not just your friends. Jesus said even the Gentiles have friends. Love for others who are not like you. Love for others who you may find inconvenient. Love for others merely for the fact that they've been made in the image of God. This isn't the first time that Jesus has asked this or, uh, uh, hears this, uh, the, the, he links these two ideas of loving God and loving neighbor together. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, a scribe comes to him and asks him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns the question and says, well, what do you think the scriptures say? And the scribe quotes this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you're right. The scribe seeking to justify himself then says, well, who's my neighbor? He wanted to draw the boundaries I've done this. I've done this. Let's see what the boundaries are. Jesus then tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember the story? There's a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now the road that exists between those two is about 17 miles long and it drops in 3,000 feet in elevation. It's windy and dangerous. So picture in your head this road and there's a man journeying. It's a great place for robbers. And along the way... Robbers overtake him and they beat him and they strip him of all his clothes and they leave him to die on the side of the road. And then a priest comes. The Baptist pastor walks by and passes by him, ignoring him, broken, beaten, for dead. Next a Levite comes. That's the assistance to the priest. So that's the deacon goes by him and never helps the man. But then a Samaritan comes. Now understand what was going on in their, he- their heads. They hated the Samaritans. Jews hated them. They were half-breeds who were unclean and untouchable and who had defamed God of Israel by mixing with pagan religions. So when they hear the Samaritan, they think, here's the, the evil one. And then Jesus says, what does the Samaritan do? He begins to cry when he sees the man and gently picks him up. Does his best to bandage and clean his wounds. Takes his shirt off and covers the naked man and begins to carry him on his donkey while he walks alongside it down a windy, difficult road to Jericho. Taking out all of the money that he has in his pocket and giving it to the innkeeper and says, do whatever you need to do to nurse this man back to health. I will return to check on him and I'll pay any expenses that are incurred. And Jesus asked this question To the scribe, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The point of this story is not for us to find a way to justify ourselves by helping strangers on the side of the road. The point of the story is that every one of us have been the priest and the Levi at some time where we decided who deserved our love. We made the value judgment. When that's not our call, our call is to love everyone, regardless of who they are, to love because they have been created in the image of God. It was to let us know of our desperate need. It wasn't about 613 laws. Those laws were to reveal to us our need for Christ. We're to cry out in this story, in this moment, and say, we can't even keep two. We can't even love God, and we, love our ne- we can't even love our neighbor as ourselves. We're guilty of the whole thing. But that's the point. That's the good news of the gospel. That is Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are we loving God with everything? Are we loving our neighbor with our, as ourself? And I want to end with a story that I believe perfectly pictures this idea of loving our neighbor as ourself. It's the story of Philip Prasad. Philip Prasad was brought up in India as a Dalit. That is a man who was too impure, too polluted to have any rank or esteem to be considered worthy of being according to the traditional caste system. They considered him them an untouchable. Between 160 and 200 million people are considered Dalits. That's almost as many people as are in America. In India's most populous state, there is a particular group of Dalits who the job of their women is to scrape up the excrement from the outdoor toilets with their hands to put it in baskets that they've woven themselves and then carry that on their head as the excrement drips down invariably. There's no surprise that they're treated as worthless, as outcasts. You can read stories about their the way that they're treated by those of upper caste and it's stories of rape and murder and beating and children being thrown into fires just because they are considered expendable. Well, there was a, a movement to Christ among them in the 19th century, but it seemed to have died out in 1947 when India gained its independence and the missionaries all left. That's where the story of Philip enters. Philip was a particularly destitute Dalit. Somehow he persuaded a local teacher to let him attend school. He was not allowed to come into the schoolroom and sit. He had to sit outside literally on a pile of dung. But he did, and he listened and he learned. An itinerant missionary learned of this boy. And he placed him in a boarding school. Eventually, Philip earned a scholarship to a Christian college. And then eventually, he came to the United States to attend seminary, where he met his wife. He was ordained into the ministry in 1962. He continued to to work in, in various occupations, but eventually ended up as the city manager for Fresno, California. And still an ardent Christian. He never forgot his situation or the situation of his people in North India. Unable to forget them, Philip traveled back to India in December of 1983. And while visiting his sister, he rode his bicycle out to a village where a congregation once existed, and an old villager asked him who he was. And upon learning that Philip was a pastor, the man said, Where have you been? Where have you been? The word struck Philip's heart like an electric shock, and then, after a long pause, he replied, I- I'm here now. It- it's Christmas Day. I would like to hold worship services with you. The, Philips, the villagers soon gathered around Philip, having grabbed their termite ridden bodies, which, I mean, uh, Bibles, which they had hidden in chests where they kept their most treasured possessions. With their hair slicked back and fresh clothes on their back and copper coins in their palms, they gathered and sang, remembering verses of songs and scripture they had been taught decades earlier. When worship was over, the old man led Philip to his hut. And there he dug up an earthen jar of coins and he shoved them into Philip's hands, declaring sternly, you did not come, you did not come. We did not know where you went. We tried to carry on without you for years. Here holds the offerings we have collected for these years. Now please take it. The event was an epiphany. And a mass movement began among this people. Several more bicycle trips to an ever more widening circle of villages and towns followed. And Philip found what Philip found shocked him. Whole villages of these untouchables had refused government offers of affirmative action schemes that would have required them to renounce their Christian faith. Their sacrifice moved Philip to take immediate action. He called his wife in Fresno. And he told her he wanted to use their life savings to reach his people. His wife agreed. Philip uh, notified the city of Fresno that he would not be returning. At one point, 10,000 people a month were coming to faith in Christ through this ministry amongst the people who are untouchable in their society. Don't misunderstand the point. Philip is not saved because he did this. He did this because he is saved. So what about us? Are we loving God with everything? Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather. Speak to us, challenge us in this moment as we sing to you. May we focus our eyes. May we turn our lives towards you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and stand and as we sing this last song, if you would like to come forward and pray or for one of us to pray with you or maybe you want more information about what it means to follow Jesus, we would love to speak to you. So as we sing, sing this, turn your life, turn everything that you are towards the Lord and worship him and let it propel you to walk out these doors and love your neighbor